Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, advisor at Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about data, how we get it, where it comes from, how it's used to build AI models, and what happens when it's inherently biased and leads to poor automated decisions. Today, we get to explore a different question. What if our approach is completely flawed? Maybe, just maybe, the answer isn't more data. Maybe AI can be human first rather than data first. Perhaps we can instead codify what small numbers of experts do to solve problems and maybe automate decisions based on that. It's a radical idea, but for certain types of problems like fixing industrial equipment, it just could work. Idomatic is challenging traditional ideas about the role of data in AI and solving problems in the IoT or Internet of Things space, although the underlying principles apply equally well to a broad set of domains, everything from, say, aquaculture to carbon dioxide capture. Christopher Wen, Atomatic CEO, is a renaissance man and a serial entrepreneur. He's as comfortable talking politics as he is about neuromorphic computing. Christopher and a quite impressive team of AI engineers and research scientists founded Idomatic last April following the successful exit they had of Aramo to Panasonic a few years back. Christopher received his doctorate and master's degrees in EE from Stanford and his undergrad from Berkeley. Among many other accomplishments, Christopher also founded and taught at the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. If you're not already, follow Christopher on Twitter at Pentagoniac. Thanks to our mutual friend, Tess Howe from Tess Ventures for the introduction. And uh, without further ado, it uh, really is my pleasure to welcome Christopher to the podcast. Christopher, why don't we get started by having you share a little bit more about your background and uh, how you got into this space. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Well, you've covered quite a bit. Um, so maybe I'll just start uh, at the end. Right, so the, the journey that I'm on can be dated back maybe 10 years, the most recent one. Uh, after I'd left Google, um, I, I updated my LinkedIn and, and said that I wanted to work on something in big data slash machine learning. And this was 2011, 2012. Uh, big data was still a term that people were just starting to grapple with, let alone machine learning. So it didn't make any sense to anyone. Uh, but I had a podcast earlier uh, around uh, 2014, where I said the reason for big data is machine learning. And uh, again, that didn't quite make a lot of sense to people coming from the big data side, but of course now it's, it's, it's an obvious fact. Um, so I started a company to do uh, the machine learning, uh, or now people refer to it as AI layer, uh, of, of the big data processing, big data storage, big data processing, and, and the application layer. Um, Long story short, uh, we were acquired by Panasonic uh, back in 2017. 
and and uh, you know by then we had been we had built the product and and you know we I'd like to refer to it at the time as a bunch of geeks with algorithms, right? Uh, Panasonic was about to uh, celebrate its hundredth year anniversary, you know, two thousand eighteen. It was founded by Masushita San in nineteen eighteen. And we did not know this at the time, uh, but the reason for their approaching us initially as a, as a customer, right? We were very uh, excited about Panasonic, NASDAQ, CIA, Kohl's, and so on as potential customers. Uh, but what Panasonic did was uh, set up a, a bake-off, right? Between us and a few other well-known companies uh, to solve some of their industrial uh, challenges, specifically industrial AI. Uh, but what they were really looking for was a team and a technology that could help Panasonic be part of that transition uh, into the second century of, of, of the company. And the initiative was can be thought of as software to hardware, but really moving up the, the stack, you know, from a components player to somebody that can you know, control the, the user experience. Uh, fast forward. Uh, after we were part of Panasonic, we, we remain our own unit. And so I, I helped with a lot of the global AI effort across uh, the globe uh, the, the divisions. Uh, people may, may not know that Panasonic today is really an industrial giant, not, not so much uh, in consumer electronics, but a lot in the industries. Uh, if you drive a Tesla or you've seen a Tesla, the batteries in, in there are manufactured by Panasonic. Uh, if you fly and you have you look at the LCD screen and you enjoy Wi-Fi, 70% of the market share is Panasonic Avionics. Uh, on and on cold chain, cold supply chain that gets a fish from the ocean to your uh, the dining table. Uh, the technology uh, there is, is provided by, by Panasonic and, and automotive and on and on. And on. Um, the, the genesis of iTomatic uh, came out of our initial failure being part of Panasonic, applying our machine learning algorithms to problems like industrial predictive maintenance, uh, energy uh, optimizations, and so on. We quickly ran into a very interesting problem. Uh, for this, you know, uh, we'll expand on it, but but I would say essentially there is not not enough data for machine learning in that context, and I can I can talk more about why that is. Uh, but it took us a while, six months to a year of beating our heads against the wall before we realized that there was, in fact, a lot of asset to be leveraged and to, to help solve the industrial AI problem. It just didn't come from data, but it turns out it comes from the domain expertise of the 250,000 people uh, that are part of Panasonic uh, you know, already. And, and so we developed something uh, that today we call knowledge first AI. And, and that's, you know, we, we launched, we, we, we left Panasonic and we launched the company back in April, 2021. And we've just completed our first year of operation. So let's build on that theme. I teased in the opener about human first versus what I'm calling data first AI. Why is that human first approach better suited for the problems that you're solving with iTomatic? Right. Um, so one way to look at it is just to think about machine learning. You know, you, you could say, um, give it sufficient amount of data, right? Uh, we uh, and sufficient amount of compute. Uh, we could use machine learning algorithms to essentially discover 
virtually any pattern in the data. Put, put uh, in a very crude way, very uh, grossly, you know, simplified way, machine learning can solve almost anything given enough data. But if there's enough data, uh, is is a big if. And it turns out in in a lot of uh, industries, and I've I've thought about this. This is uh, any company that has a significant physical dimension, which is quite different from the world that that I came from, and that most of you know, folks in Silicon Valley come from the Googles, the Facebook, the Twitters of the world that are digital first companies, right? Uh, there's a huge world out there, right? We, we still uh, drive our cars. We still, you know, eat our lunches. We're still very much, you know, atomic beings, not just digital beings. Um, and when it comes to uh, industries that have a, a large physical component, right? We talk about industrial IoT, uh, manufacturing and, and so on. It turns out the question of having the right kind of data and sufficient amount of that data is, is a big challenge. Uh, machine learning fails at these problems. I, I can give you a particular example of that, but it's, uh, it, you know, there's a pattern out there. And, and very, you know, not just us uh, uh, that have discovered this, we're lucky in the sense that we're actually inside the belly of the beast, right? But a lot of vendors outside that try to sell to manufacturers and, and other industrial companies uh, find that that uh, you know the algorithms, the machine learning algorithms alone will not work to solve these uh, business relevant problems. So let's take a specific example, maybe in the manufacturing space. Let's say a very sophisticated piece of HVAC equipment. Yep, and they're relatively speaking, like you've educated me about a small number of quote experts on how to fix that HVAC equipment. Yep. And what you want to do is capture the sum total of knowledge of all the experts about how to fix particular problems that the HVAC equipment has and codify that. Yep. It's a non-trivial problem. How do you go about capturing what's in this small number of, uh, not, not trivially small, but relatively small number of experts' heads and codifying that in a way that you could then train models on how to recommend fixes for, for problems. Well, well, let's talk about the motivation. Why, why do you want to do such a thing in the first place, right? Uh, take, take the example you just raised, right? HVAC equipment. Uh, there's a field called cold chain, uh, right? The cold supply chain uh, that we work on uh, quite a bit uh, that when we were part of Panasonic. Um, uh, let's talk about predictive maintenance uh, use case within that. In other words, uh, you know, the, in the past, we have what's called reactive maintenance. When something goes broken, right, a sensor goes off, and then somebody goes out and says, okay, uh, let me take a look. Oh, it's a compressor. And then there is preventive maintenance, uh, which is an improvement because reactive maintenance turns out to be very expensive. It's not the equipment you're worried about. It's the downtime. Right? The downtime can be tremendously expensive, you know, even in, in life-critical situations. Uh, I don't know how you measure the loss of lives. Um, so preventive maintenance essentially says, okay, every six months, let's go through and just replace this set of, of, of components so that they can't fail, you know, the, the chance of their aging and, and, and failing is, is very low. The holy grail is predictive maintenance, which is fixing things before they catastrophically fail, but only those components that are needed, right? So you need to be able to add, answer the question, can you tell me the probability of this compressor failing over the next two months, right? To be able to, to do that. Uh, to be very precise, what that is, is failure prediction, 
right? Because predictive maintenance, a lot of the people that have implemented it out there or claim to have done so, they have not actually done failure prediction. What they have done is anomaly detection, right? And what anomaly detection is, and that can, can be done with machine learning with massive amounts of unlabeled data. And all that is, is that you, you take in as much temporal or time series data as you can. And then over time, you discover certain patterns that you would say, well, these are normal things. I've seen them before. And one day you wake up and the, the sensors are sending a, a, a series of, of, of signals that are abnormal. They're not necessarily alarms, right? But these are patterns you haven't seen before. Then you trigger uh, an alert. You say, okay, I'm seeing something strange. That is useful, but it's not actually failure prediction. All that is, is something looks different. Not even something is wrong, right? It could be that, you know, the power source is a little different today. Um, so what happens is machine learning ends there. In order to then map that to potential failures, machine learning it has to enter what's called supervised learning. In other words, there must be a lot of labels of past failures of the same type so that I can, okay, given this, then I can learn that. But the, the problem is what? Equipment is generally designed not to fail a lot, right? Uh, and then even when you have past failures, service personnel that goes out there and replace things, they tend to replace a lot of things. So if you look at the log records, it's not just the compressor, it's also the filter. It's also uh, the temperature sensor and so on. So then you look at those things, they're not useful labels for machine learning. And yet when you give it to a human expert, who knows that range of system, they will look at the sensors and they, they say, based on this reading, based on this pressure being too high and the temperature being too low, I think you should look at the compressor. So that's the, the, the original motivation of when we realize we need to talk to these experts because we can only generate using anomaly detection signals that something looks different. It still, re, it still requires a human expert with with their domain expertise, with 30 years of experience to look at the data at that time and then say, based on this, I believe the probability of failure A is this, failure B is that. It took us a while longer for us to essentially accept defeat, right? And say, okay, all right. We keep having to go through this manual process of asking the three experts that are available you know, in all of the country of Japan. Why not start to to figure out how to codify what the, whatever procedure or, or heuristics that they go through. And it was when we started doing that, that we began to succeed as a industrial AI unit. So that, academically, this approach makes sense. And I certainly see it from the perspective of building a business at Itomatic. But if I'm one of the three experts, my reaction is I want to fiercely protect that tribal knowledge because I don't want to make it easy for you to automate me out of a job. How do you mm. respond to that? Well, these three experts are having to service all of Japan. So they're actually overworked. But you touch on something very interesting, right? There was a, there was a talk I gave at the 2000, I think it was 18 uh, AI conference, uh, O'Reilly conference in London. And, and one of the questions was, you know, how do people feel about being automated away? 
um, because you know the, there's a lot of talk at the time, even now, about you know masses of people, you know, manufacturing, for example, being automated away by AI. Yeah. What we do, and it turns out when we look across the landscape, most of the time it is about scaling the few human experts that do not have enough muscles and brains and time to go solve problems you know, that are at scale. That turns out to be the much bigger value creation for smart companies like Panasonic that, that know, you know what, the, what the points to leverage are. It's not so much about replacing and you know, removing 10 you know, uh, relatively lowly paid manufacturing line people uh, from from their from their assembly line. So the use cases that that resonate, you know, for this kind of thing is very much about finding the cases where really only the human expert can solve, but you actually have so much deployment out there. And I think in the in the U.S., you know, I th I, we may have talked about this uh, in one of our earlier conversations. Um, in the last 40 years, everybody's been encouraged to go to college, right? Nobody wants to do the trade work anymore. But it turns out trade work, you know, maintenance, plumbing, uh, tooling, and, and, and so on, that pays really, really well. So the, the world is in short supply of human expertise. And so what we're doing here with, with this knowledge first AI is to be able to apply that, you know, at scale. Uh, to 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 but interesting physical problems for which machine learning with data alone uh, cannot solve. So when we think about future opportunities, problems that can be solved with AI and machine learning, what would you say is the biggest constraint on innovation? Is it compute power? Is it storage? Is it the limitations of uh, you know how how fast we can process signals is it human ingenuity? What is it that's holding us back right now? Oh, uh, I've been in technology for a fairly long time. Uh, you know when we started dating ourselves, when I said I worked on on XNS, right, which is the conversion to TCP/IP uh, back at Berkeley. Uh, I've seen a lot of these cycles. And, and the, the, the correct answer to the question is that it depends. Uh, the bottleneck or the long pole, if you're doing things right, you have a different bottleneck that sort of rotates every few years, every 10 years or so. Uh, in computing, we've got you know, storage uh, bottleneck, networking, communication bottleneck, or, or compute CPU bottleneck, right? Uh, right now, where we are with respect to machine learning and AI, um, for, for example, for a very long time, uh, it was a computing bottleneck, even though we didn't really realize it, right? And then in 2012, uh, Google, the Google Brain team published this work, you know, that say, well, we're just applying this deep learning algorithm, which has been known for a very long time, to a very large compute resource, that, you know, at, at the Google's disposal. And suddenly the same algorithm perform wonderfully in such a way that sort of, you know, accelerated and went right past all of the other machine learning approaches. Uh, today, it may seem like we are also compute limited, right? Uh, but increasingly people are, are seeing, well, there are a few institutions, right? A few players like a Google or a Facebook or an open AI that says we're gonna train extremely large scale models. Uh, but the next breakthroughs, a lot of us believe, is going to be in somebody being smart about the way of doing something, right? 
and and in the in the more generic sense, I use the word algorithm. But I, I don't just mean the machine learning algorithm itself. But for example, right, uh, approaches or algorithms or ways to to codify human knowledge, right? Uh, I think that that kind of thing will allow us to make the next major leapfrog in terms of this broader field that we call AI, you know, artificial intelligence. That is not just machine learning. So I often get on my soapbox on this show and I talk about the importance of practicing responsible AI. Mm. And as someone who's hired many AI engineers, and I know you talk a lot publicly about the field of AI engineering, what do you think is our responsibility as, let's say, vendors or anyone who's putting AI-related technology out into the public domain? What kind of responsibility do we have to train AI engineers to be ethics aware? Yeah. Strangely, that turns out to be a controversial question within the field. I, uh, I, I regret that there are, there are people in, in, in our field that say that is not, the, that is not the, the problem of the people you know, designing or practicing these things. It's, it's kind of like you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, uh, I, I do think there's a shared responsibility. Uh, and I think that that is much more than academic for people like us because we do work on life critical systems. You know, one of the things we do is uh, automotive, uh, both the in-cabin experience as well as automotive cybersecurity. Over the next few years, cars are going to be less like, you know, traditional cars and more like computers on wheels. Uh, they're they're going to get attacked, right? Cyber attacks is a very, very real thing as, as we're, we're seeing in in you know, during these times, there's a real war going on, physical war, people realize, okay, well, war is real. Uh, so I, it, I think the number one thing is, is the, the first thing that companies like a Panasonic have always been concerned with, you know, even before the, the latest wave of AI, right? When you build a car, you got to think through, okay, there's going to be humans driving in this thing and safety features and so on. Uh, so the responsibility on AI practitioners or you know algorithm designers, you know, researchers, and so on, I think is not any less. You have to you have to think about the the impact of these things. How you go about these things? There's a lot of debate about it, uh, but but I think the way uh, the way I think about it, sort of philosophically, or my mental model is the following: We focus too much on intent. What matters is impact, right? Uh, because by, by, by incorrectly focusing on intent, it allows people the, the out of saying, if I don't mean bad, if I didn't mean to do that, I'm okay. But I think, I think if we're, we're held accountable to an appropriate degree for the impact of our work, then I think we'll begin to, to, to have the right systems and processes for, for measuring these things and even regulating these things. You and I started talking about a recent guest that was on the podcast, Gordon Wilson, who's the CEO of Rain Neuromorphics. And uh, you ended up drawing me on the back of a napkin, a diagram of, uh, of, of how potentially we could recreate the human brain in silicon. And uh, it led me to be curious to ask you this question, which is, uh, what gets you most, most excited in terms of research themes, uh, you know, potentially achieving some kind of breakthroughs that could dramatically accelerate the field of AI, you know, maybe, you know, 
similar to some of Hinton's research, you know, a decade or two decades ago, like what's the next breakthrough that will be achieved in academia? Do you mean AI or, or, or you mean in terms of human uh, impact? A lot of it comes back to, I was thinking more about like, you know, you, you were telling me about uh, memristors and some things that we could potentially do with some fundamental breakthroughs. What's the fundamental breakthrough? Almost, I was thinking about it, you know, like back propagation or something that ends up being just a foundational technology that unlocked, you know, deep learning. Like what, what's the next equivalent of something like back propagation? Right. Well, you know, you touched on what we talked about, right? You know, starting from the membrister as one possible such a device, but uh, you know, there's there's a whole area, uh, roughly labeled neuromorphics, right? Uh, or, or let's let's call it human brain inspired computing. Um, one one thing to realize is that we went from CPU, which is a von Neumann machine, it's actually quite a very different just. It's an unnatural invention, if you will, because um, the compute power we have is so little that we have to impose a lot of human knowledge, the programming from the outside, right? It's not, it's not, it's a non-learning computer, right? So we have this, this arrangement of compute separated from memory, and then they come together doing some processing and so on, right? Uh, and then we transition to this age of GPU, which happened to be I would say an accidentally useful com computing unit, right? Because it, you know, what the GPU does is, is that uh, it, it doesn't generically do all this, all the compute that, that a CPU does. Uh, it, it does the same kind of calculation, but across large arrays very quickly, which is a very useful operation uh, for machine learning. Uh, and people get to be more uh, efficient with FPGAs and so on. Um, but I, th I think, the way I think about it is that all of, all we're doing is we're simulating, right? The equivalent of a neuron, right? And I wanna be careful because a lot of people say, you know, you oversimplifying, we're not really, yeah, we're really not building the, the human brain, but we're using the, we're inspired by that. But the neurons units that we're using today is incredibly inefficient if you think about it compared to the human neuron or, or compared to the basic unit that we want. All the neuron really does in this sense is that, sums up signal from a number of inputs multiplied by some weights and then you know has a single output coming out and then trigger if it's above a certain threshold don't trigger if it doesn't that operation can be vastly more efficient right you could use a for example a single transistor to do it or you could use a you know an, an optical device to do it um, <clears throat> or we mentioned the membrister so the idea of going through from you know from all of the simulation right, of, of the neuron equivalent. There's something where it's a single device doing so very efficiently. Uh, I, I think we've learned in the last, you know, really hundred years that anytime you multiply compute power by a factor of 10X, amazing things happen that you and I can't sit here and, and predict in terms of use cases. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about, you know, let's say the compute uh, cost of, of uh, of AI today going down by a factor of a thousand, right? Who knows what kind of intelligence that would unlock. So let's say um, that's imminent, maybe in the next decade. Um, what's one example of a behavior that will be commonplace in daily life that will be enabled by that breakthrough that would today just seem like science fiction? Um, I, I, think, I think probably the, the very obvious one that is 
the uh, you know what what is AI right? It's prediction. It's anticipation. Uh, you know everything else. All the compute we've had up to this point is generally looking back, right? Uh, and then doing the analysis of that. But the decision making, the modeling of the future is still very much the domain of 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 the human brain, right? Uh, of course, we're at the where this transition where computers are starting to be able to to, to be relied on. All right. That in fact, that's my business in terms of predictive maintenance. Right? Is this is this uh, compressor likely to fail within the next two weeks? Right? With what probability? So I think that that's one thing that computers will will get much better at. Right? They will be able to model the future much better, and they will be able to predict likely outcomes. Right? Eighty percent sure this is what's going to happen, and seventy percent it'll be this case. Uh, and and depending on how we build them, maybe they'll be doing so much more rationally than than the way the human brain does it, right? I mean, people don't realize how flawed, you know, how primitive the human brain is. Uh, I I don't like to think in terms of building, you know, the equivalent human intelligence. It's just another track of of, of smart machines, right? Uh, so I think the ability for machines to be able to anticipate our needs, our wants, our desires farther into the future and more accurately. I think it's, uh, it's going to be a very interesting uh, set of applications. So Christopher, time flew by. I, uh, I got to get you off the hot seat, but uh, I got to ask you one last question. Somehow it came up in conversation that you had a significant contribution to Unicode a while back, uh, and you can share what that was. But my, my question for you is, Given all of your many accomplishments as a, as a researcher, a technologist, an entrepreneur, a professor, to this point so far, what, what do you look back on and say, you know, that, that's my proudest achievement? That, that's hard to say, but, but I think, you know, referring to the conversation where I talked about Unicode, uh, that, that was a remark where I say, you know, I observe. And in fact, well, I'll, I'll say what that, shared that observation, and I'll share that I just shared such an observation, you know, back in uh, Cambridge at Harvard, uh, you know, a few days ago. The most impactful thing uh, of your work will not be whatever you think it is today. You know, that I was referring to my my work on Unicode, uh, the Vietnamese part, the the implementation of that. Uh, I did that work during my PhD, which was on semiconductor devices, right? And and it was it was a hobby, right? I I, I love working on that. I, I wrote Vietnamese keyboard software. I, I helped define the VIQR and the VISCI standards and so on. But that was that was uh, that was my hobby. That was my passion. It consumed most of my time. <laughs> I just spoke to my former PhD advisor to sort of remind him that that I was only working on his work, uh, you know, maybe 20, 35% of the time. That's an example where, you know, now that I look back, the, the Unicode work is far more impactful than whatever I did with quarter micron by CMOS devices, right? And, uh, and most recently I, I, I was on a trip to visit the, uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard where they're, you know, they have a new initiative called the Global Vietnam War Studies Initiative, and I'm, I'm helping to sponsor that. And and I, I, I reminded the participants, right? I'm, I'm a supporter of that. Uh, that the people that spearhead that, that the impact, you know, we we can we can forecast, right? Their their goal is, I think, it's quite relevant to what's happening to you know in Russia and Ukraine today. Uh, they're trying to promote through interviews, truth telling and healing, uh, you know, from uh, of the wounds of that war. 
And I said, you know, I fully support that, but I believe the impact of that would be much greater than anything any, any one of us here around the table can predict today. So, so that, that's how I think about the meaning of impact. So Christopher, we're out of time, but please share with our audience, where can they learn more about your work and about the work of iTomatic? Uh, yes, so our website is probably the easiest thing to, 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 to go to. It's iTomatic. It's like automatic, but starting with AI. So AITomatic.com. Excellent. Well, uh, I look forward to having you back for another episode. There's so much that uh, we, we didn't have a chance to unpack, but this is a great starting point. You, you mind coming back at some point? Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, this was really a pleasure. Thanks for hanging out, Christopher. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dan. Well, that's, uh, that's all the time we have for this week on uh, AI in the Future of Work. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, signing off, but uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>